Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's episode is about the alchemy of voice and the transformative power of Princess Diana's voice of change with her voice coach, Stuart Pierce. On today's episode, we'll be featuring our guest, Stuart Pierce, a legendary master of voice, radiance mentor, and angelic emissary who's worked with royalty, actors, CEOs, change makers, and celebrities for 40 years. Stuart was the head of voice at the Weber Douglas Academy London and helped pioneer Shakespeare's Globe Theatre as master of voice between 1997 and 2010. He's coached incredible luminaries like Margaret Thatcher, Mo Molem, Ben Zerbudo, Anita Roddick, Diana Princess of Wales, of course, and Marion Williamson, to name a few. Stuart has published The Alchemy of Voice, an excellent book which I also have read, The Heart's Note, The Angels of Atlantis, and most recently, Diana, The Voice of Change. This book expresses new revelations about Diana's life principles and how she ignited personal radiance and became a global icon. I'm so excited to welcome Stuart on the show today. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Yasmin. It's always wonderful to meet new people and to have these intelligent conversations around the planet. So it's a great joy to be here. And and, um, thanks to all the listeners for tuning in. (laughs) Thank you so much, Stuart. And Stuart, just to kick it off, can you tell us about your work for the audience who may not uh, know about your work? Can you talk to us about The Alchemy of Voice? It was a book that you wrote, but I think it's really a philosophy that you started uh, a philosophy that i started I'm, I'm sorry i'm not with you uh well it just it's sort of like a a new way of thinking about voice oh i see what you mean yeah, yeah. well <laughs> well yeah it's it, it's interesting isn't it that's a very very interesting pivot to start our conversation at. I, because i believe that it's an ancient um philosophy or an ancient way of being that we've unremembered, that we haven't forgotten, but we've unremembered. Because when I move around the world, as I've been doing, you know, for many years, teaching uh, voice as a as a healing modality or voice as a changing mechanism or voice at the very core of our creativity. I, I, these things that I say where I impart in the communication of ancient wisdom, people say, oh, I know that. I know that. I know that. I mean, for example, that the nature of the alchemy of voice, of course, pours out of alchemia, pours out of the kemet, pours out of the, the whole substance of ancient Egypt, um, where the substance of alchemy was really an experimentation in looking into how base metal, or indeed the baseness of humanity, could be found creatively to become a transcendent union with the divine, to turn base metal into gold, or to move from uh, mortal disharmony into divine coherence. And right at the heart of it, there is a great belief that all of this that we see before us, or indeed within us, all of this came about through sound. So we look into the great faiths or the great wisdom cultures of our planet, and we hear about at the beginning of Genesis, it says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
or at the beginning of the fourth gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And then we go into indigenous tribes such as the, the Hopi Indians in North America, who are some of the Anasazi peoples. Anasazi means they who came from the skies. And they have a firm belief that when the spider woman sang at the beginning of creation, that she sang the mountain, the lake, the plains, the antelope, the eagle, and you and I into creation. So wherever we go on our planet, there is a belief in the divine word or in the aspect of the great Om, the sound which is the calling card to God. And so really what I'm doing is allowing us in a very practical way, in a very earthed way, in a very grounded way, to recognize that deep within our bodies is a sound that is our signature note, just as unique it is as our iris or our fingerprint or the biocircuitry of our DNA, that our voices, if you like, are a bio-identity kit. Now, in the ancient Greek-Roman thought, it, the, our voices were called persona, meaning that we would reveal the essence of our being through our voices. And indeed, the word persona in Latin means per, through, sona, sound, so that we would reveal the essence of our being through our sound, through our voices. And if this was the case, what the ancient Greeks and Romans did, and then future civilizations or future cultures borrowed from that ancient premise, which um, was probably already borrowed from in terms of the earlier civilizations of our planet, meaning the Sumerian or the Egyptian or the Atlantean or the Lumerian. What, they, what human beings did was to work on the physical vessel of their bodies, which produces sound, as we know. So we work on our breath and we find a position for our voices that finds a harmonic center. And when we find the harmonic center of our voices, the whole of our beings change. We feel more relaxed. We feel more in harmony. We feel more peaceful. We feel a greater stillness. And we resonate from the very core of our beings. So as the great Rumi, the great poet said, when words arise from the heart, they enter the heart. When words arise from the tongue alone, they don't pass beyond the ears. So this is the sound that we're beginning to hear in, in Western culture um, or indeed throughout the Middle East. Uh, and it's often associated with that sort of nasality, you know, going into the American sound there, uh, that everybody talks in their head rather than coming from their bodies. <laughs> what I do is that just to help people fine tune themselves into a sound that is more centralized, more harmonic, that effectively if we're giving presentation or making speech or talking you know, in, informatively to significant others, that what we do is we magnetize them in with this sound. Whereas if we go into this thing, we tend to send everybody out. You know, it's like dispersal or division. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do is to allow everybody to feel the song of their soul, which is the richness of their heart. And indeed, you know, to dovetail into what you were sharing earlier with our listeners, um, this was one of the major things that I, I, I shared with Diana so that she was actually able to find the core of her voice, which enabled her as sensitive as we know her to be, because we all know the stories about her emotional fragility, her vulnerability, her bulimia, 
her attempts at suicide, and then her eventual bid for freedom to cease being the prisoner of Windsor, so to speak. And Stuart, can you tell us about the book, Diana, The Voice of Change, now that we're moving into the subject of Diana? And thank you so much for creating the context around the work that you do. I think it's fascinating. And I think so many people in the West, like you said, are entirely in their heads and completely disembodied and disconnected from the heart. And so it's interesting, um, you know, how actually a question before we dive into Diana for you is what um, is the length of time that it takes for people to find their true note? Um, do you, does it take, you know, a matter of an hour? Does it take days, weeks, years? Um, or is it just this constant evolving thing? It's an interesting question. And it's one that's often asked of me. Um, and I feel it's a product of the doing mind, you know, that we do, 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 do. And, <laughs> and actually, fundamentally, what we're really talking about is how we be. Mm. Uh, it depends really on the the physical and social um, attunement or mobility of the individual, how coordinated they are, how aware they are of their bodies, how aware they are of the holistic nature of life, you know, that physical, emotional, mental and spiritual energies are our potential in balance. And um, because of the doing, 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 doing consciousness and the, the, the fierce competitiveness of our peoples around the world, we tend to, as you were just saying, use our heads as a sort of computer within a transport vehicle or a body rather than living through the whole of our bodies. And then, of course, as we know, we meet stress or we meet, um, you know, we, 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 we meet acute physiological breakdown through sickness, perish the thought through COVID-19. And, um, you know, we, we have to find a way of healing ourselves. And my firm belief is, you know, particularly having interfaced with female cancer over the last 40 odd years, but we can find ways of being able to heal even the most rapacious disease within our bodies if we can work out where it began, what it began with. Um, I mean, we know, for example, that there's a sort of cancer in the Western world at the moment, which we can see being polarized, particularly in the politics of the United States and the politics of, of Great Britain, just to mention two. And that really what's happening is that there are constituent parts that are now rogue and moving away through white nationalism or through fascism or through the pure disturbed psychology of division, moving away from the collectivization of our peoples. The, the, you know, the, what's so extraordinary about us is that we are unique in the sense that the rich panoply of what we are somehow functions in the most extraordinarily unique way. But we're all human beings. Mm -hmm. And when we come together in our humanity, we weep, we share on a very, very deep level, because we suddenly rec recognize that we're not alone, <laughs> that we're in this all together. But of course, the v divisions in the West are rather like a, a metastasis of a cancer, you know, that they've suddenly bred in this extraordinary way that we we see units being rogue. And now it is our time to recognize that and be the change that we want to see, to bring ourselves all back into harmony. Mm. And so, you know, to to sort of dovetail into how is this practical for all of us, but particularly for people who perhaps are in the public eye, 
because more and more of us, particularly our sacred women, are recognizing that they are huge forces for change. I believe fundamentally that the next chapter of history is written by the women and the girls, not by the men. And um, you're doing a, a greater job <laughs> of sorting this world out than some of we men who seem to be creating a real mess of it all. Um, so we see this, don't we? We see this in, in Jacinta Arden in New Zealand. We see this throughout the world with the extraordinary prime ministers or female potentates that are stepping forward. Angela Merkel is an extraordinary reference. Kamala Harris, who is just <laughs> breathtaking. You know, we're going to see sweeping changes. And there are many other boy and many other names that I'm not mentioning in this moment, simply because of, you know, giving a sketch and then moving on to Diana, Princess of Wales, who was obviously <laughs> that captured our imaginations in the most extraordinary way, is regarded to be the most photographed women, woman in history, um, went through the most extraordinary journey of um, literally liberating the whole of the royal family when there was a possibility that the institution of the royal family in Britain were about to cave in um, through behaviours that were taking place within and not really seeing how they were, the, you know, the royal family is really a cipher by which the whole of the British nation can be read. Um, and I'm not necessarily talking about Her Majesty, I'm talking about other members of the royal family. So there was a great deal of disenfranchisement. And then along came this beautiful young girl, or this rather plain girl, I suppose, to begin with, who then suddenly started, rather like an ugly duckling, to become this extraordinary swan. You know, she became the people's princess in a matter of moments, having spent most of her time as a nanny, as a, you know, as, a, as an adult, right when she'd left school, um, traveling on the top of a public bus, suddenly she became the people's princess, and then eventually, as we know, became the queen of everybody's hearts. And before she, she departed in her 36th, 37th year, we saw this exquisite human being, this executive female of the world who was really beginning to shine her light purely through one premise, which was that love is all there is. Mm -hmm. And if we dispatch our love through kindness, compassion, empathy, and gentleness, grace is literally going to be um, the, the, the pathway on which we walk. And as a result of that, the, the extraordinary blueprint of these fine, these finite human virtues begin to literally illuminate the conviction of everybody around us. And so, for example, in terms of expanding her radiance, we cannot be radiant if we're fearful. When we're fearful, the whole of our energy field contracts and squeezes our, you know, we squeeze ourselves into these tight vessels. And as soon as we begin to recognize how to transform fear into freedom, how to transform um, dis-ease into ease, how to transform negativity into positivism in absolute simplicity, we begin to grow and we begin to relax and we begin to expand. And as a result of that, our energy fields expand. And then we begin to realize that we're living from the heart is the seat of the soul, and that the heart has an energy field 5,000 times greater than the human mind. Stuart, can I ask you, why are people so afraid of living from the heart? I mean, do you have any idea or thoughts about that? Uh, and I want to also talk about how you were able to transform Diana uh, to speaking from the heart, because it seems like that really made 
um, you know, a lot of transformational change in the world? So two different questions. Um, yeah, so the former, um, I feel that we're fearful of deep feeling because we can't control it. We just feel it. And it takes us into um, deep, deep causative experience. Um, we open up a field of psychology or archetypal psychology where it makes us go move into the antediluvian nature, the atavistic nature of what we're all about as human beings, you know, because we're essentially animal with an intelligence. Homo sapien has developed a conscious intelligence that we're able to make choices very simply. This is the only planet of choice. You know, what would you like? Pleasure or pain? What would you like? Abundance or scarcity? What would you like? Freedom or incarceration? We make, you know, we have this basic, and of course what I'm doing is being very simplistic, talking about choice, but fundamentally that's what it's all about. Um, but if we're fearful, we can't make choices. We become fundamentally indecisive. And it feels that the controlling intelligence of the mind, particularly since the advent of the age of enlightenment. So if we go back 450 years ago, men and women thought and felt in a very different way from the way that we do today, purely and simply because we can read in, 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 in literature, particularly dramatic literature, and that's one of the reasons why I became so fascinated by Shakespeare, because although he wrote 450 years ago in his language and rhythm is unusual to us today, that if we really touch deep into the soul, the heart, the magic of what his words are all about, we realize that there is a Renaissance mind pouring forth with untold magic you know, it's rather like that wonderful story of when the students of Albert Einstein said to him, Master, what book should we read to expand our consciousness? And he looked them squarely in the eye and said, read fairy tales. Mm. And they thought <laughs> that he had misheard them. So he said, they said again, but no, Master, which books, thinking that he was going to refer to Max Planck or Eric Bohm or, you know, <laughs> quantum physicists of that period. And he said, no, go and read Hans Christian Andersen. Go and read the fairy tales. You'll learn much more about human nature, <laughs> about the nature of the cosmos. And of course, they didn't really understand because they were all affixed on the substance of becoming mental athletes, of course, which is all about, as we all know, we'll know, tick the box, tick the box, tick the box, tick the box, and tick the box, because this is the only way to perfection. And it's obviously not true because we see people who are ossified from their feelings. They, they live in their heads. They work and live robotically. And then suddenly at the age of 45, they discover they have a duodenal ulcer or that they have um, you know, gross discomfort in their bowel or they have some form of heart issue purely and simply because the tick the box, tick the box, tick the box is engaging us all in this frenzy, doing, 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 stress, 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 stress. Because as we all know, most of the time, we're not doing what we could be doing because they say so, whoever they happen to be. And they often can be specters in our consciousness to do with difficult situations that we had as children. And this is the case for extraordinarily adept young people who have a, a, an extraordinary mental ability and a mental agility to be able to develop polyglottal frames of reference where they can speak many different languages of thought. Um, but even then, there, there are strong parents often or strong teachers saying, you could be much better, you could be much better. You know? And so 
The difficulty is that how, however we go into the sphere of the cerebralization of our peoples, the fact is that we end up not feeling enough because there's always somebody else to compete with us. There's always another opinion. And of course, today we're very vociferous about our opinions. We use our opinions to p compete egoically with one another. So you know, as you can hear that I'm very aware of the articulation and the splendor of what human thought is all about. And I love exchanging with wise people about the way that they perceive the world. But if it's not balanced, if all of that is not balanced with the nature of how we can be kind and caring and truly present in our lives with compassion and empathy and love, do as you would be done by. Love is all there is. You know, these famous maxims are now coming back and brewing in the very substance of our bodies. And so hopefully that answers some of <laughs> Yes. Yes. Thank you, Stuart. Can you tell us now how you met Diana and why you chose to write about Diana now? Yes, because um, our relationship was completely confidential. Um, and it was something that I proposed to her. Uh, I was asked if I would work with her by a very close friend of Diana's who I knew very well, who was an extraordinary patroness of mine um, and introduced me to many, many people. She was a leading restaurateur in London. Um, her name was Mara Burney, and she had a restaurant called the San Lorenzo in Knightsbridge, which is a very salubrious area of the city of London. And um, Mara has said, had, had introduced me to a, num a number of clients that I'd taken on. And then she said, I really want you to work with Diana because Diana really needs you. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> because not, well, I wasn't honored by the gesture, but darling Diana was surrounded by a circus of the brutality of the establishment attacking her, of the paparazzi. I mean, it was just, I thought, I can't get involved in this. It felt suffocating. And then a few months later, of course, more information came out through the arousal of um, Andrew Morton's book, you know, Diana in her own words. Uh, and I, my heart bled for her. You know, I was so touched by her story. And it wasn't that I was in doubt of the credibility of who she was. It was more to do with the establishment. And then I think six months later, Mara said, I want to introduce you to somebody. And I said, oh, OK, who is it? And, and she said, oh, just come and have lunch. <laughs> and, and I'm a great foodies and I loved her cooking. So I went to the restaurant for lunch. And as I entered the restaurant, I felt surprisingly nervous, you know, intuitively nervous. And I thought, what is going on? So I turned to the head waiter who I knew very, very well. And I said, Pepe, who, who, where is Madame? Oh, she's downstairs in the Salon Privé. And who's she with? You'll see when you get there. <laughs> I'm being set up. So I walked in and there was Mara and <laughs> Diana. And Diana just, I closed the door and said, oh, I've been set up. And Diana grabbed hold of my arm and with those extraordinary eyes, those sapphire blue eyes, said to me, you will work with me, won't you? <laughs> And I have to say, you know, I in that moment, I just fell in love. I mean, she was just, or I rose to love, <laughs> rather falling. Um, I, I was just, I thought she was one of the most magical, one of the most true, one of the most authentic, one of the most precious, most vulnerable, one of the most extraordinary people. Mm. And, um, and we fell into this deep conversation over the amazing spaghetti or whatever it was. And... Um, 
And I said, oh, okay, let's do it, darling. But I want this, I want our relationship to be completely confidential because I feel that I can be of immense service to you holistically. And I don't want anybody getting hold of the information that we're working together because it could be misconstrued or distorted or, you know, whatever. I saw that, you know, the gutter press doing all sorts of interesting things with it. Yeah. And she said, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And so... My studio in the the heart of um, the Chelsea district in London became her her sort of oasis where she would come once or twice a week when her diary would permit and we would engage in the sorting out of her immense sensitivity as an empath and developing boundaries, you know, energetic boundaries, I mean, because she was so open that she just allowed everybody in. And I said, okay, well, I think we need to draw boundaries so that you feel, you know, the fragility of your being is being protected by an acknowledgement of the fact that you are vulnerable and that we need to just not put armor plating around you, but really understand what your sensitivities are all about. And as a result of that, then we can start working on your public presentation process. So instead of talking in that, in that sort of slightly <laughs> breathy voice, we started to move her into really finding her center so that the resonance of her voice opened out. And as a result of that, I believe, I believe that we began to see this in her speech making and in her really formidable impetuosity because she was able to step forward in a very courageous way, even in the extreme crises and be extraordinarily brave and uh, state who she was. So in other words, she moved from the sense of her being victimized into really realizing that she was all powerful and sovereign in her own right. And of course, then brought about the changes that she moved through, through the divorce from Charles, Prince Charles, and uh, the recognition of all of the work that she could do as a peace ambassadress. Wow. Stuart, why are people still transfixed by Diana today? Why does she, why does her name still come up so much in uh, popular culture? You know, it's been so long since her death. It's been so long since she has been a part of the royal family. Um, wh why are people still talking about her today? And I think this also dovetails nicely into The Crown, which has become a very popular Netflix series. And if you believe that the series is an accurate portrayal of Diana? Yes, and of course, I, uh, as you ask those questions, which are beautiful, these are wonderful questions, I suddenly realized I didn't really answer, why now do I bring the book out? And it sort of will bring us into, so why is she remembered now? Um, Diana said to me one day, very wistfully, um, at the end of a conversation that we had about um, what we always talked about, which is what could she do? What could she do? What could she do? <laughs> uh, and, you know, what had arisen was that strange activities took place around her or indeed, you know, within her immediate um, loco parentis, um, which was that her car brakes would fail and she was a great driver. So she found a way of making the car safe Um not fortunately, not in heavy traffic. Um, her cell phones were being stolen. You know, it's, it was a very that strange people would appear that she felt she was being followed. And it was my job to allow her to recognize that she that we needed to honor the feeling without it becoming too neurotic. And she said to me very wistfully one day, you know, Stuart, darling, all of this work we're doing will one day be a book. And I remember saying, what? I don't think so. <laughs> 
Um, but I was also immensely respectful of the fact that she was extremely intuitive. I mean, really uncannily intuitive, particularly about people, and that she had the promise of being a great psychic, you know, a great seer. Okay. And and she said, well, when you, you know, if you do write the book, please make sure you don't write it until the children are married. Oh, and wow. so that's why it's come now. Wow. Which takes us into why is she so around? You know, why is there this re-exhumation or an exhumation of the Martin Bashir Panorama BBC program where now suddenly we're, we're feeling that she was coerced into doing it. No, no, no. I don't know what took place with Mr. Bashir, who is a charming gentleman. I don't know what that was all about in terms of him forging, you know, these bank accounts, um, or at least the bank statements rather than the accounts. Um, no, Diana walked into that fully cognizant of what she was doing. This was her bravery and her courage. She wasn't trying to get you know, she wasn't trying to establish revenge on Charles. What she wanted to do was to allow the people of the world to know what she had been through so that her life could become a vessel to liberate and emancipate the consciousness of other people around the world, women and men, but particularly ladies, you know, who were cast down by the patriarchy as a result of ruthless fathers or dominant husbands or male you know, male figures in their lives, whether it be bosses or teachers or brothers or lovers or colleagues. She wanted to liberate. And um, that's why she did the TV program. Now, I feel that there are two very basic elements or instruments that are being reestablished. If we look at Diana, we realize that this very simple girl became this monumental world figure. She was the most photographed woman in, in recorded history. And of course, as we know, that when she when she passed, 3.5 billion people, which was way over half the population of the planet, wept during those so-called seven days of doom. But she, in other words, she released a force in the archetypal, archetypal membrane of the collective unconscious, a force of Shakti, which is an element that pours out of the divine feminine within the cosmic consciousness of our peoples and the, um, the quality of, of intelligence within our planet, within the Gaia herself, and of course, within our universe, our galaxy. She released that force in the way that we saw something shook the world when JFK perished. Something shook the world when Martin Luther King was shot and also Bobby Kennedy, Gandhi, these great people that, that perished. And there, you could feel the ripple go around the world. I'm of a certain age that I remember these events. And so I feel that something happened and that many of us are still in shock that we breathed in a startle reflex when we heard that she was dead and we haven't breathed out. So she's back in spirit because of the arousal of the divine feminine within our midst, that she is back in spirit to awaken us to that outbreath. And I feel that that's why we're returning with the success of the series of The Crown, with the Martin Bashir, with, with the, the book that I'm bringing forth, which is gaining immense interest for, you know, through mass media communications. 
Um, uh, uh, and at the beginning of uh, a brave new year, you know, 2021 from an astrological point of view points to be a year of recovery, a year of abundance, a year of us all coming together and realize that we've just been through something horrific over this year of COVID, economic uncertainty, and the geopolitical landscapes quaking in the way that we have not seen in the history of man from a global point of view. We've seen it in specific nations, but not as a global proposition. Um, so I feel that she's here because she's future facing and that the wonderful women of the world like yourself are waking to the power that you can begin to bring forth. And of course, I mean the power of love the, rather than the love of power um, and to change some of the social mechanisms that have been unfair or disassociative or disenfranchising. We can, you know, literally begin to grow together to create communion rather than dissipation and division, to create a constructive future and to create the fact that we're here to optimize our creativity full of love and joy and therefore become the greatest vision of ourselves. We can't do that when we're frightened. We can't do that when we're being underpinned by systems that are created by men who are just, you know, thinking about how to control people. Um, Stuart, you also talk about uh, Diana's death in your book. And if you feel comfortable sharing, I'd love to just briefly talk about you know, what that means from the divine feminine perspective, right? Like where she died, um, the link, you know, historically. And I think that it's just an interesting um, point of view that kind of blends, you know, the spiritual world with our 3D world, if you want to call it that. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about uh, her, her death and, you know, what you think is the significance of that? Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, and I, I sort of gen, I enter into that space that you've just evoked um, very deeply in the book, because the, the big question that so many people asked me was, um, you know, was she killed? And um, something unusual happened. I, I, I won't go any further than that. But, you know, we, we can all hazard conjecture in that direction. That, that in that direction the point is the significance of her death because as i was sharing just now you know some very extraordinary social phenomenon took took place at her death 3.5 billion people wept um the whole of the western world ran out of newsprint because of the papers and news articles that were being printed and within europe alone um during those seven days there was a huge floral shortage because of the flowers that were <laughs> for um, tributes. Um, so something very unusual took place. Um, what's interesting is that I go back about 15 years ago when I was working with one of my CEOs in Paris and um, he, he you know, was heading a multinational corporation. And I was helping him with a merger, just getting the, the communication really correct. And we were, we were in the Ritz in Paris in the Place Vendôme. And um, it was a successful meeting and the merger went ahead and he was absolutely thrilled. And so he said to me, um, when are you going back to London? Because I was literally leaving Paris for London on, Euro, on the Eurostar, on the Channel train, you know, the Channel Tunnel, um, later that evening. And I said, what about... 1600, 16, uh, 1800 hours. And he said, okay, good. That gives us time to drive across 
to get a book I want you to have, and then my chauffeur will take you to the station and you can jump on the train. So I said, fine. So we're driving across Paris, and suddenly I see the tunnel, and I hadn't been, and we're driving through the tunnel. He said, wait a minute, you worked with Diana. She died here. This is the 13th pillar. Do you know, in Roman times, this was the Temple of Diana. And I said, what? How do you know that? He was a keen historian. And I said, oh, my goodness me. So I remembered this. And then I went further by talking to a number of very extraordinary people around the one around the world who have a lot of esoteric magic, um, who are very sane people, very balanced people, but are aware of the mysteries. And indeed, I discovered that the point that Diana died in originally in Roman times was the Temple of Diana. Um, the Spencer family, because we know she was Lady Diana Spencer, the Spencer family is one of the most noble lineages within the, within, within the English um, heritage, within English heritage, and actually can be traced all the way back through uh, a feudal lineage that goes all the way back to a group of beings that were feuding um, medieval warlords um, well, actually, they were really, in, you know, I suppose, in the Dark Ages that we refer to. This was around 350 AD through to about 850 AD who lived in the area. And they rebuilt the temple that the Romans had left in effectively 65 AD when the Roman occupation ceased and many of the um, regiments went back to Rome. They left the city that was there, which wasn't Paris, it was their own citadel. The name Paris came from the tribes in the area that then began to inhabit before the, the group that I'm going to talk about in a second. And they were called the Parisi. So this is where Paris came from, the, the name Paris. And then these feuding warlords took over and they uh, lived through the embodiment of the goddess Diana as the goddess of the hunt. So they borrowed the mythology of Diana from the, the Romans. And, uh, uh, and the Greeks, of course, refer to her as being Artemis. And um, they rebuilt the temple of Diana and they fought their duels at that point. And they believed that the vanquished person, they were always arguing over land for some reason. I don't quite know what the antecedent of that is. But the, the person who perished as a result of dying in the duel, that their spirit entered a portal at that place and they literally became God's eyes on earth. And that's why the tunnel is called the Pont de Alma, the bridge of souls or the bridge of soul. And it goes all the way back into medievalism. You know, there was a hospice on the site to enable those who were very sick and dying to pass into the afterlife in gentle ways rather than in you know ways of, of great degradation. So this is where she chose to pass. So there's something very mystical about her union with the divine and also her family's union with a lineage that goes all the way back into the sands of time, possibly going all the way back even to the substance of the mystery surrounding Jesus Christ, and as we saw, the love of his life, Mary Magdalene. You know, did Jesus die on the cross, or when he resurrected, did he continue living? The Roman Catholic Church, of course, will allow us to believe that he did perish. He rose on on, on the third day purely to 
illustrate uh, in an analogy or in a parable form that we could have, um, we could conquer, the spirit would always conquer over the flesh. Oh, thank you so much for explaining that. I just had shivers <laughs> throughout my body as you were talking. <laughs> uh, Stuart, I wanted to also talk really quickly about the connection between Meghan Merkel and Princess Diana, which you also brought up in your book. Um, can you share what you referenced and why, you know, I think that Meghan Merkel has been a controversial uh, name and figure for a while, but I, it's funny, a lot of people have jokingly said to me, you know, for over several years that I always looked like Rachel from Suits. <laughs> so I always liked her. I mean, um, yeah. So I, I'm curious, uh, what, uh, is that connection and significance, you know, with Meghan Merkel, if you feel comfortable sharing? Well, I do. Yes. I, I, I feel that both Diana and Meghan are change bringers. Um, and Diana, obviously, as we've already considered through what, what you know, what you and I have shared in this airing, um, was obviously of a time where a certain promise was being born. I believe that we see now with Meghan that she has been cultivated as the extraordinarily bright, smart, intelligent woman that she is, who is not going to be a pushover. <laughs> Very simply, um, I do not believe at all in any of the dishonoring degradation that the press is creating around her. I don't believe that she is the person that they make her out to be. I believe that she is a change maker, but the world doesn't like an intelligent young woman who says no. It's very simple. <laughs> and she's saying no. Uh, I am privy, uh, I can't say how, but I am privy to the outrageous conduct of the press in attitude towards Meghan when it was discovered that she was in love with Harry and that Harry was in love with her. I feel that their love is an incandescent form of very mature understanding between young people, two young people. And I feel that we're envious of that. We're envious of their bond. We're envious of their beauty. We're envious of the quality of force where they may be human beings, but they're also a cipher by which the sacred marriage of bygone years can be in, interpreted in a very contemporaneous way. So this is, in other words, what I'm really touching into is the archetypal consciousness of we human beings. That what is actually happening on surface is really not what's happening at all. There's something much deeper, much more profound, and, and, and actually monumental because of the way that it allows us to interpret the true purpose, the true intelligence, and the vastness of what human consciousness is about. Beautiful. Stuart, have you, you've obviously coached uh, other leading women and it seems now, you know, you're talking about the women of the world raising their voices. Um, what have you seen recently over the last maybe year or so, or maybe actually the last several years, um, you know, with the rise of the Me Too movement? Uh, what, what have you seen with your coaching sessions when it comes to leading women and how has it been um, different than coaching sessions with men? 
Wow. I've never been asked that before. Um, what, what I'm seeing is that I, uh, what I am seeing demographically is that um, in all ver- in all the areas of my work, I mean, you know, for example, I'm working for a friend at the moment um, who is a summit host in the United States, and he wanted me on his program about three months ago, which I I said yes um, because he's a very fine human being and wonderfully intelligent and, and sensitive and a very beautiful soul. And of course, I said yes, Nid. I want you to talk about Diane. I want I want people to understand how you, as a radiance mentor, how you approached the substance of her life and how we can learn by that. And so we had a conversation which seemed to stimulate the imagination of many, many, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people, women came. So I'm, I'm seeing that I used to work a lot with men and now I'm working more with women. I feel that the women are stepping forward bravely and courageously saying, there's something here that I want to acquire. And it's very much to do with the quality of vocal weight that we notice in those people who have power, that gravitas is an energy form that we've always noted in great people who have great voices. Uh, And of course, one of the great male voices that we have around at the moment um, that we were listening to for eight years when he was in administration was Barack Obama, who I often fondly referred to as Obama, <laughs> as this sort of barrel organ of a voice, this beautiful dark brown sound. Um, but also, you know, um, you know, leading figures like Marianne Williamson, who stepped mm-hmm. forward uh, to hopefully find success in the successive stages of the presidential acclaim. Um, and we noticed her and we heard her extraordinary politics, her politics of love and Indeed, I would say that she has been noted by millions and millions of people, even though she didn't eventually win office. I'm sure that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, as they move into administration, will draw Marianne in on some level. So anyway, back to where I was, which was that uh, many women are, are quite light in breath and quite light in voice. And they're finding that they want to increase resonance in their voices, to fill their voices out. And when they come, there's uh, quite a lot of delicacy and fragility. And what I'm doing is just allowing them to feel the fullness of their voices so that they can feel the fullness of their power, which, of course, allows them to develop courage and bravery to be forthright in relation to what they need to do, whatever it may be, whether it be in a board meeting, in a meeting with clients, in in the political arena, or indeed life-saving for one's children who, who, who may be suffering from autism and the systems or the establishment is taking no notice how brave women are stepping forward and saying, I will not allow this to happen. This is what my child needs. You know, so that's what I'm helping women find in simplicity. There are many, many, many different aspects. Because, of course, as we know, we are, as human consciousnesses, we are kaleidoscopic in the way that our physical, emotional, mental and spiritual energies function. Where did you learn your philosophy from? I think you have such an incredible background and you've been doing this work for 40 years. Can you tell us about 
what attracted you to this work and why you think it's so important? Oh, wow. Um, I had a very challenged childhood because I was seeing a level of consciousness in the world. I didn't know how to use these words then, of course, but it was it seemed bigger than other people. I didn't think it was that, by the way. I wasn't wrapped up in the ego. It's just that I talked about what I was seeing and people looked at me very strangely and said, what are you talking about? That doesn't, you know, that's not happening at all. Um, so in many ways, I was seeing the multidimensional universe. I was seeing the, you know, the supernatural world. And um, I couldn't read. I'm, I'm profoundly dyslexic. And also I was being affected then severely by something called synesthesia, which is a crossover of the senses. So in other words, I was seeing sound. I was seeing sound as color, as great waves of force. And... Um, Fortunately, I had an immensely loving mother who, alas, has been dead for 40 years, but she was she was extraordinarily, you know, she was a grounding mechanism in my life because I was a very hypersensitive. I guess today you would say that I was borderline autistic or ADHD or whatever. And um, because of the challenges, I shut up. I just, I did, I self-muted for two years. And my brother, who's a year older, spoke for me he and I were very close then. And um, I watched the world and I found stillness within, which grounded me. I didn't know what it was called, but I felt much better. So that when I began to speak again, my mother said, let's, I think you should go into a church choir. Was there, my parents were good Christians. You're always humming and singing. And I was put into a church choir, which I thought was fantastic because I could sing. <laughs> but also I loved the church and the ritual and the theater of the mass and so forth. Um, and then I began to read because I had a book in front of me. I was just copying the other boys, but I realized that the book had notes and they were topography that were undulating like a landscape. And they were part of the wave consciousness of that that I already knew intrinsically. But there were notes that were different durations and different tonalities that you could use your voice in a certain way to sing a longer note or a shorter note. And underneath were the words. So I started to read through singing, not through speech. Mm. Wow. So in other words, I learned to read through flow. And earlier on, I was so frightened that I couldn't understand why the letters were dancing in front of me um, because they I were either jagged. I couldn't see the, the, the letters. Um, and we didn't know. And this was in the, th the, the early 50s. We didn't know about dyslexia then. <laughs> you were just I was educationally subnormal, you know, so it was quite challenging. Wow. So it started then, really, because I couldn't learn, you see, uh, and uh, because I couldn't learn, the teachers were always very full of disapprobation and rather brutal. Not that I'm tied up with that now, because I've healed over the years. So I started to ask of life, why? Why is that so? And just began to develop my consciousness in relation to the answers that came by asking why. Why? Which is, I suppose, <laughs> anybody who's had a two to three year old or, or four, you know, two, three, four, five year old, we're, we're just unbelievably <laughs> irritated by the fact that every everything they say, why, why? <laughs> well, I just went on asking that question and didn't irritate anybody, but just asked questions of the world. And of course, the great literature of the world um, opened to me. And I was very fortunate enough to 
people kept saying, there's something about your voice. There's something about your voice. They could never tell me what was about my voice, but there was something about my voice. And I thought, well, there's something about my voice. I'll start using my voice. And then somebody said, you know, you make a really good actor. And I thought, oh, gosh, well, there's a little bit of light. I'll go towards that. (laughs) And then I became an actor. And fortunately, I had great teachers. Um, And one of them, effectively, nine years after working with her in a very, very established theater company, um, she called me when I was transitioning from being an actor, which I was through the 70s. Um, She called me when I was called back from living in the States and working on Broadway and about to make a big movie. And I heard through my brother that our mother was dying of cancer and she only had three months to live. So I came back to live and um, and and nurse my mother. And then my mother passed. And I didn't know what to do. So I'd lost my agent and so forth. And then um, this wonderful person who had been my mentor with this theater company called and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm just being this. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. And she said, oh, well, come and teach for me. And I said, what? What do you want to do? I'm an actor. And she said, oh, come on, you've been through three years of work with me. <laughs> And the rest I'll give you. And there's this woman I want you to go and work with. Uh, I I don't want to work with her because I'm a diehard socialist. She's just taken over the Conservative Party. Go and work with her. Because the person that I'm talking about was a very, very famous voice coach. And um, she was always being sought after to work with the great and the good. And, of course, you know, two weeks later, then I was walking into Downing Street and met Margaret Thatcher, who was just a wonderful woman, a wonderful human being who was so gracious to me. And, um, you know, we liked each other on the site. And then I worked with her for about, I suppose, intensively for about six months so that, again, she could uh, could acquire the weight in her voice to always be measured as a being of power. Rather than that sort of light sound that she had, you know, that sort of upper middle class sound (laughs) we used to hear, you know, uh, it just didn't carry well. And so I've just gone on asking questions and my consciousness has has expanded. I've been very fortunate. I've worked with some extraordinary people and I've learned from them. I'm a good student. Wow. Stuart, what has been the most surprising thing that you've noticed about this voice work? How extraordinarily simple it is to tune a voice if the individual's ear is good enough to feel the pitch and the resonance. Mm. How simple it is, and yet how it is a key into a vast cosmic consciousness. And this is why we refer to as sound is at the core of creation. Wow. Stuart, do you have any kind of like final takeaways for our audience about their well-being, um, and and in particular um, within this context of this pandemic, um, what's your kind of final words on maybe like your your kind of your own signature <laughs> perspective on on this last year and how voice and your work could help people? What's what are your final thoughts? And maybe you can even make it broader and say what are your what are your final thoughts on health, well-being, and wellness? Well, what's fascinating about COVID is that it's a virus that attacks our respiratory function. And so, in other words, this 
dark force is attacking the way that we breathe. And so I would say my signal suggestion for great health, for great well-being, for great joy, great lovemaking, great abundance is learn how to breathe. Most of us are completely unaware of our breath until something goes wrong where we have asthma or COVID or something else to do with the nature of the way we breathe. And the breath is the substance of our life. When we enter out of, you know, through the, our mother's birth canal into the world, the very first thing that we do is go, <sighs> <laughs> and the last thing that we do is that we breathe out and then we go into this experience called death. So that's extraordinary, isn't it? We enter this world and we breathe in and we leave this world and we breathe out. So we know that the word for breath is respiration and that there are two parts, inspiration and expiration. To inspire, inspirare, inspirazione from the Italian means of divine influence. So every time we breathe in, we, we are influenced by the divine. If we're not conscious of this, our bodies physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually are not informed by the breath. So I say we all need to learn how to breathe. And when we learn how to breathe, we become grounded, we become more centered, we become more relaxed, we become more still, we become more harmonized, we become more powerful, and it's easier to flow through life in the pattern of being in, in touch with the circadian rhythms, because as soon as we're in touch with our breath, we touch into the natural rhythms of our planet, the flow of the tides, the movement of the winds, and of course, the movement or the dance, if you like, of the great spheres within our universe. Wow, Sturt. That was phenomenal. I can listen to you talk all day long. I mean, it's clear that you've <laughs> done this work. <laughs> um, and so for our audience, you know, what are some resources that you can point folks to so that they can learn more about you? Um, obviously, we'll leave them all in the show notes so that our listeners will have access to all the websites. Um, and I know Diana, the voice of change.com is one. StuartPierce.com is another. Is there anything else um, or any other resources that you want to share with our audience, um, and especially what, if they want to work with you, if um, if you offer group sessions, or um, I think you mentioned that you do some retreats uh, in Egypt, uh, you know, maybe in a post-COVID uh, world. Um, but yeah, if you could just tell us where can we find you, how can we uh, follow you, how can we work with you? Yes, well, I mean, I do have three websites, and you very beautifully have just mentioned two, um, stuartpeers.com. And so, um, yeah, anyway, so stuartpierce.com, which is really addressing the very public side of me, you know, the, the voice coach, the master of voice, the um, radiance coach, you know, the person who helps leading people to become even better communicators, which we can all, you know, even the most experienced speaker can always learn if they're, if they're open to learning and they're not cast within the tower of the ego. Um, then, of course, there is... The, I'm very excited about the nature of Diana, the voice of change. So there is Diana, the voice of change.com. And then there's all the other rather cosmic work that I do with the metaphysical world, which is that um, in 1987, I met 
12 angels. So I work with beings of light. I think probably the easiest thing to do is for people to go to either stuartpierce.com or Diana, the voice of change, and just to sign up on my newsletter um, list, they will become subscribers. And they, you know, I send out at least three newsletters every week with information about where I am in the world, whom I'm working with, what the next project is. So if anybody is interested in the voice, for example, and learning more about their voices or acquiring a greater power within their voice or a greater power within their whole communication process in a very broad macroscopic fashion, read The Alchemy of Voice, you know, which was the book that introduced you and I. So uh, it's become an international bestseller over the years. It's hailed as being uh, a remarkable book of its own generic form. I, I mean, I'm somehow not attached to it. It's like a babe, you know, it's like a child that I had. And so I'm very proud of the child, but it's sort of over there doing something <laughs> um, as children do. Um, and Diana, the voice of change, of course, as you so beautifully illustrated, is a composite. It has all of the major exercises that I used with Diana um, or for Diana, with Diana. Um, and particularly, the, I think I feel that the, the last chapter of the book, The Anointed One, is a really interesting um, chapter because it really explores the nature of leadership and the nature of what it is to be sovereign of one's own power, how to develop one's own kingdom in a very practical way from the archetypal reference of the fact that we're being given this opportunity to unplug from central government or the central governing principle of patriarchy and to find something which is infinitely greater uh, in terms of its its balance between the male and the female, the matriarch and the patriarch, the king and the queen. Um, so I feel that possibly answers the question because, as you know, as you're probably gathering, <laughs> my my creative outpouring is quite um, is quite diverse. It's quite multifarious or multidimensional. So it's difficult for me to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I think I think we are all multidimensional beings, um, and unfortunately, in culture, I think we want or culture teaches us to be one dimensional because it's easier for people to wrap their heads around who we are. So I, I'm like you, I also have a film career and a tech career and a podcast career. So I, I have full range as well. And, um, I love that you have such an expansive, um, view on reality and I really wish we can open source your thoughts <laughs> so I can just tune in at any time. What, what is Stuart Pierce thinking about? <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time, Stuart. This was such a pleasure. Uh, I had so many more questions, um, but I know we only had an hour. So um, I really just am so appreciative and I'm grateful that we had this conversation. I think it will help a lot of people. And I think it will also, uh, you know, create more questions for people to contemplate on so thank you. Oh, bless you. It's been a joy. It's been a joy. I, uh, I, I love my work as probably you can hear. And so <laughs> to um, spend an hour, uh, you know, answering some really intelligent questions, I ask you, uh, I thank you so much for the questions, um, that it, it also encourages my own musculature to expand and to, you know, consider things from a, 
a very profound point of view because we're in a we're in an era where we need to ask profound deep questions rather than being caught up in the superficial of what life is all about you know this is a time of immense change so it's wonderful to have been invited on your program and i i say hello and also thank you to all the listeners that come in and um, i hope we meet again Thank you again, Stuart. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the alchemy of voice and the transformative power of Princess Diana's voice with Stuart Pierce. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.